Welcome to BiPlus, podcasting for the BiPlus universe. I'm Elizabeth Meacham, and I'm here with my co-host, Ames Leibowitz. Today, we welcome Maxfield Sparrow of the Asperger Autism Network, or AANE. We'll be discussing the intersection of being both queer and on the autism spectrum. Well, hello, Max. Do you go by Max or Maxfield? Um, either one is fine. Uh, could you please tell us about yourself? And I know you've got a nice, long, um, interesting history. So, yeah. Uh, well, I am autistic myself. I'm middle-aged. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was seven years old, but no one told me about it. So I didn't learn that I'm autistic until I was 34. And that's a really common story for people who either weren't diagnosed as a kid at all, or it was kept from them. And then when I was 48, my mom told me about the earlier diagnosis, but that was after I had written books and gone on speaking engagements. And so it's been a, a journey and I, I identify as neuroqueer. That is a word that was um, independently developed at the same time by three different people, Nick Walker, uh, Athena Lynn Michaels Dillon, and Remy Yurgo, who are all autistic writers and activists. And neuroqueer is a word that speaks to the way that having um, a divergent brain, whether it's autistic, uh, having ADD, schizophrenia, anything that makes someone neurologically divergent from what we call normal, I'm making air quotes for it, um, that what we're doing is queering the queering neurology and not just that our own neurology is queer, that, but that by existing and being openly and unashamedly divergent, we are queering the world's idea of how, how brains should be, how people should think, what people should be like. Um, and I also identify as queer, separate from neuroqueer. Uh, like a lot of people, I have a whole lot of identity labels. Um, Metagender was my earliest one because I first started coming out gender-wise uh, about 27, 28 years ago, and we didn't have the word non-binary. So I came up with the word metagender, which now I've seen a lot of different people are using it, and it has about a dozen different definitions, and I actually kind of love that because I love the ambiguity, and, and I love living in the margins and the edge. I think that's, that's a very queer thing to have something that's just not set in concrete. Uh, I'm also transmasculine. I identify as transsexual, but I want to note that uh, some people, especially younger trans people, don't like that word, so never use it for somebody that doesn't use it for themselves. Um, I am epicene. I am pansexual, which is has evolved out of a bisexual identity. I I still identify as bisexual, but I layer the label pansexual over it, and that's the word that I choose. Um, I'm demisexual and I'm aromantic. What does epicene um, mean? 
Epicene is a word that comes out of grammar, uh, an epicene word like, uh, well, a good example is aunt and uncle are gendered words. Mm -hmm. Cousin is not, it's an epicene word because it could apply to anyone. And epicene is a word that I use to describe my body uh, because it's not a man's body, it's not a woman's body, uh, it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. And this is the anyone who's done any any exploration or thought around gender should pretty quickly understand that that there are parts of of the body that serve different biological purposes, but that doesn't make them gendered. And so, for example, because I was assigned female at birth, I do have a uterus. I don't consider that a woman's uterus or a man's uterus. It's epicene. Okay, cool. Yeah, I had, that's the first time I've heard that. I think you think I would have heard that in grammar class. No, uh, never heard that word before. Okay, well, thank you. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had. To oh no, no, no. You're fine. Um, and pronouns. I don't really have any pronouns because uh, I don't. I view my gender as relational. My my gender is created by the interactions I have with other people. And I feel like I belong to all the genders. And so I don't really have pronouns. And what I tell people is that I accept all pronouns offered in love. But I, I have found that it feels extra good to me when someone uses their pronouns to refer to me. Like I first noticed this, um, I was I was participating in the vagina monologues at Naropa where I did my grad work and we were practicing and one of the women referred to me as she and it felt really good and I had to sit and question why because sometimes it feels really bad when someone calls me she. And I realized it was because they were calling me what they were. And so uh, I call that mirror pronouns. And when people use mirror pronouns, when I I recognize that they are seeing me as being the same gender they are, whatever gender it is that they are, I feel extra seen. And Wow, that's interesting. That's a nutshell of of who I am. You're also an author. I am. And um, I'm going to say this publicly. I hope we have you on again. because that yeah you've got a couple of books that i'm really intrigued by oh i'm stealing the word neuroqueer i love that i love please please do um and uh there is a a web page i will i will give you the url so you can put it in your show notes that 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 nick started that is neuroqueer i think it's dot com it might be dot oh wait i wrote yeah dot com neuroqueer.com okay so does it is it specifically for anybody that is neurodivergent or only queer people that are also neurodivergent? That has been an ongoing discussion in the community and some queer autistic people have expressed um, distress at the thought that someone who is cis and heterosexual might use the word queer. Um, even combined with neuro. And so some people are saying, no, you have to be queer to be neuroqueer. But the developers of the word themselves, who are all queer as well as neuroqueer, have said that it is an inclusive word. And um, I think it was Nick who said that, um, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing her, so I, I may, I may, it may come out a little mangled, but it, the idea that if you are neuroqueer, you 
are queer, even if you haven't questioned your gender, even yeah, if it's... you only have sex with people who are of what's perceived as the opposite sex from you, that being yeah. neurologically queer is so socially queer that that queer is bigger than sex yeah. and gender. All, all queer means is weird and different, you know, and different in a way that other people marginalize you. And so I can see neuroqueer people calling themselves neuroqueer and not meaning that they're part of the queer community, that that's a, a, its own community or both. I can see it both ways. Ha ha. Um, you know, I can see somebody being upset that somebody would co off the word queer, um, especially since it's so personal to some people because they've been attacked by it and have reclaimed it. But I also can see neuroqueer. I mean, this is a very marginalized community. Um, and that's the one thing that they're discovering, you know, all these rates of autism have quote unquote risen, but they haven't. It's they're identified right. more people who just seemed, and I mean, they probably did use the word queer to describe those people as well. Um, you know, the odd person out, the strange. Well, and there's a long history of the same people who uh, uh, marginalized um, autistic people also did work with um, conversion therapy for. Oh yeah, well they do all the things. Yes. They're not nice people. The I mean, same person they, developed them. That was yeah. It's always the, the same person who developed conversion therapy developed a lot of the therapies that try to make people not be autistic. It was the same researcher oh, that's who great. came up with them both. So that's a very that's not accurate observation tried. and to. Yeah. To what you said, Elizabeth, about the, the rising rates not really be ri being rising, there's a parallel to bisexuality. Like, there wasn't a word for it. And then it's like more and more and more people are bisexual, but no, we've been here all along. Yeah. And it's erasure. Like, Oscar Wilde is not, he was not gay, he was bisexual, but he gets erased and called gay. Yeah. And the same thing has happened with with autistic people. Some uh, there, there are many different things we've been called. Everything ranging from nerd and geek to mm -hmm. to introvert to some words I'm not even going to use because yeah. they're harsh and insulting words. But but all of the all of those were mislabeling of people who were just autistic. And then yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to ask is we're talking about kids, um, or you brought this up. I've noticed that in the South, especially, um, people will diagnose, get a diagnosis for their child. Um, and I've ran, run across this uh, man who's now deceased, but he was in his 60s and had never been told that he was neurodivergent. He was, um, did have mental disabilities, uh, it, it, I mean, severe enough to impact him. Nobody ever told him. In fact, he was a firebug when he was a kid. And the army just put him in uh, pyrotechnics, <laughs> so they <laughs> utilize that. But I asked us, I, you know, we're having all this. I'm helping him, and he's having all this uh, crisis with his sisters taking advantage, and and uh, I, I had to get him housing real quick, so he was in my house for a little bit. But um, I finally contacted a, a sister in Alaska, a different sister, and asked, "Did you guys? I mean, does he have a diagnosis?" "Oh, yes, but." Mom said we shouldn't tell him, so they never. He would. Mm -hmm. He went to his grave without knowing, um, and he had a very interesting life. But uh, I also noticed some. It was, it was very the same way. It was yeah. very typical to not tell children, and even even today, one of the more common questions I will get from parents is, "Should I tell my kid?" Yeah. And 
the argument they will have, I, I will say, well, why is it that you even question? Why do you not want to tell your kid? And the answer is usually something like, well, I don't want them to feel different. And that ship has already sailed. Yes. The child knows they're different. Yes. And if you don't help them understand why they're different and understand that it's okay to be different that way, they're going to come up with their own explanations. Like I did. I thought I was stupid. I thought I was crazy. I thought I was broken. I thought maybe I came from another planet and got left behind and shouldn't yeah. even be here. Yeah. And, and it would have been so much nicer to know, and oh, it no. it cost you a heck of a lot less to have known because that's expensive yes. getting a diagnosis. It's unreal how expensive it is. And insurance doesn't even necessarily cover it, which we have found out. We've spent over $1,000 on two children now. Um, oh, it's ridiculous. And, uh, and, and then one of them, I think, was a mis yeah, long story. But it's, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to find resources. It's good resources. Um, and yeah. it's hard. And the other thing is, yeah, we we have, I know of two relatives, three relatives um, that have some sort of mental disability or mental difference. Um, and nobody ever told them or did not diagnose them. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the other common thing is people just like, well, no, he'll outgrow it. They just don't get it diagnosed. And it's severe enough that, you know, this it's impacts their lives in very, very hard ways. Oh, um, yes. And uh, it's just uh, our medical system. Anyway, and then our attitudes towards mental health. It's, it's stigma that goes. My, my brother was not diagnosed until his 40s. And my oldest has a friend in, at college who was never told her diagnosis. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to teach mine. They have the diagnosis. I fully involve my kids in their medical. They know everything I know. Um, but it's their lives. It's same thing with school, fully involved them in all the school talk. They go, went to every conference. Um, I'm trying to teach them how to use that as an ex explanation versus a, an excuse. An excuse yeah. means I don't have to do it because an explanation means I'm having a hard time doing it because, so let's find a workaround or this is trouble for me. So let's find an alternative. You know, there's a huge difference. It's the core of self-advocacy is yeah. being able to explain what's hard for you and why and what would make you able to do it. Not yeah. to say, well, I just can't I do it. I don't have to. <laughs> I was so proud of my kid because today they told me that they have a hard time making recordings for school for their music class at home mm -hmm. because they feel awkward or uncomfortable or need to ask us to leave and then they struggle to get it done. So they found that their workaround was to take their teacher up on his invitation to let them do it at school. And so they are now self-advocating to say, hey, I really need to do this at school because I can't do it at home. It's not working. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even ask you to do that. And now you have taken these tools that I hope we've provided you. And um, I said, I hope this sounds okay, but I'm so proud of you for for self-advocating. So they were like, well, why would I be offended by that? Why would that upset me? And I yeah. said, I want to sound condescending. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's, but it is, it's right up there with potty training. Once your kid uses the toilet for the first time, you're like, yes. Once they self-advocate for the first time, you're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. There's another one that I rejoice at that surprises people is when a kid tells me no. I celebrate that because yeah. 
especially autistic kids, they get their no taken away from them. And they're not allowed to say no to anything. And so, yeah, I, uh, especially younger autistic kids, if they say no to me, I say, that's good. You, yeah, you, yeah. you tell me when you don't want to do something, you say no, that's good. Interesting. Well, you know what? And I wonder if that the more um, developmentally disabled somebody is, like the, the more extreme the disability, if, because people will start doing things for you. And then you're not even allowed to advocate or even talk in some cases, you know. It that doesn't. Does, you don't even. It. You don't even need to be what other people perceive as severely affected. And I do want to make a side note here to say that um, a lot of times in the autistic community, we talk about um, when people say severe autism, they're not talking about us. They're talking about how they feel about us, because oh, people. People that you would look at and think, oh, well, they're doing really great. Look, they're working a job. They can drive a car. They, it, their autism is still affecting every aspect of their life in ways that you just aren't seeing, but they get called mild because other people's impression of them is mild. But yes. you never know what's inside a person. And a lot of times that the, the people, in fact, they're doing a lot of research on it right now. They're finding um, there is a, a much higher suicide rate amongst autistic people than the general population. Um, they're still figuring out where that is, but a lot of studies say like seven to nine times more likely. And they're just now coming out with research that shows that the people who are most at risk are the ones who have been labeled as having mild autism. That, that they're, while they may be able to do things like drive a car, tie their shoes, use language with their voice to speak, mm there are other things that are so hard it's it's killing us and yeah. and there are studies that have found that that our our lifespan our like average lifespan uh is in in the 50s or even one study said that that like 37 i think was our That's our average suicide it's because of oh, suicide yeah. it's because of um about a third of people with autism have seizures and those can be really deadly yeah. um their uh heart problems are big in in um the the autistic people that have higher support needs tend to be mm -hmm. more likely to have heart problems and, and between those three things yeah it cuts our life expectancy down now yes you will meet autistic people in their 80s and in their 90s but when we're when we're looking at the whole population and seeing an average life expectancy that is at least 20 years less than the general population there's 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 a lot going on and it's not just the people that we refer to as severe it's every autistic person yeah. is at high risk uh, can you tell us a bit about AANE and um, your work with them, how long you've been doing, what you do with them? Yes, AANE, um, they are one of the oldest autism organizations in the United States. Um, they were founded in 1996 by a group of parents and professionals. Um, and that was at a time when autistic people were only just beginning to come together and and 
talk about what we wanted and, and what our rights were and, and the whole the whole movement of autistic people was coming up at that time. So it's not surprising that, that it was founded by parents and, and professionals because we weren't connecting yet at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was originally named the um, Asperger's Association of New England. Oh, okay. Now it's... That, that, that's what AANE originally yeah. started. A, a lot, a lot of organizations will will change their name and keep the acronym. Like you may have heard of the ARC, and the ARC that actually started as an acronym, and the R in it was the R word. Yeah, and and that's why it's the ARC now. They didn't want to change their name, so you couldn't find them. But they're like, we don't want that word in our name anymore. Yeah. and with A A N E. Um, or, or I've noticed people who've been there a long time, they call it A&E, like the A's run together. <laughs> but, but like, uh, my, 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 my desire for precision keep, keeps me from wanting to do that. So A A In 2014, they changed their name because they wanted to acknowledge that they were no longer just working in New England. And now it stands for the Asperger and Autism Network. And they, they've kept the word Asperger and they, they, they talk about something they call the Asperger profile because um, Asperger's is still, I think it is still a diagnosis in some other countries. It depends on whether you use the DSM or the ICD and countries that use the ICD. I don't, I don't know if they've changed it yet, but like even after we quit using Asperger's as a diagnosis, other countries did. So the word still does exist worldwide. And um, my problem with the word comes when it gets used as a code to say, uh, to say somebody with, okay, let me rewind a little bit. People, you've probably heard the phrases high functioning and low functioning autism. And yeah. those, those are phrases that many autistic people do not want people to use because they, they are offensive. The, the best quote that I have is um, a lot of people talk about, if you call me low functioning, you're saying that I can't do anything. And if you're calling me high functioning, you're saying you're not going to help me. So instead, we talk about low support needs and high support needs or, or lower support needs because everybody needs support. I mean, people who are neurotypical, who don't have any neurological divergence, need support. Everybody needs support. When it comes to support as an autistic person, like I have lower support needs. There's still things that I need that I can't really get through my day without but but they're almost invisible if people don't know they don't see my support someone else might need someone there 24 7 to make sure they don't hurt themselves or or make sure they're eating things like although i need someone to make sure i eat too i forget all day but that's an adhd thing too absolutely (laughs) absolutely well and and my family here like Two thirds of us are autistic, and the rest have ADHD. We are a very neurodivergent family, and and we're always scaffolding each other to yeah. to to yeah. just to get by. We 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 need each other very much. But That's actually, Ashley, high comorbidity too, isn't it? ADHD with or autism with ADHD, not necessarily the other way around. But yeah, it, it, it is, and I, I feel like I'm being the word police, but. Comorbid is a word I don't like either because morbid. It's a weird word, right? I mean, it's going to be comorbid because my autism isn't morbid. So how can anything be comorbid? And I guess that just means too uh, uh, too 
things together. And I'm like, how did that come to be a, a word I, I, community for well, things it, to occur together? It's part of the medical language. It, it's putting yeah, things it's as so a weird. disease or a disorder. Yeah. Like autism and so ADHD, they can be disabilities. Yeah. They are not diseases. They're, and they're co-occurring. Yeah, so I, 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 I had a problem with that one. No, no, no I'll, I'll, I'll use phrases like co-occurring conditions, co-occurring traits, things yeah. like that. Um, and yes, ADHD and and autism uh, both uh, can are often co-occurring. And there are some lay people, I don't know any researchers who are saying this, but people in the autistic community often will talk about people with ADHD as cousins because we share so many traits that it, it almost seems like it, you know, we talk about the spectrum and the continuum, and it seems like ADHD is somewhere in there. And the spectrum is not this like line that yeah, you measure exactly. you're here or here. I think of it as like an n-dimensional cloud, yeah. and and somewhere in this cloud of neurodivergence, there's ADHD and there's autism, and they're all over the place. Yeah, and, I, I sometimes think it jumps around too on you. But oh yeah, yeah. the way that the different things. So my younger one. Technically, the diagnosis is not autism. It's, I hate this term, but it's pathological demand avoidance. Ah, yes. Yeah, it's related, but in the U.S., it's usually filed under autism. In other places, it's its own diagnosis. So for her, it's not, or for them, it's not its own diagnosis. It's just, um, it's Say part this again. Of what is it Pathological again? demand avoidance. Which sounds mean? really terrible. It sounds like a kid who just doesn't want to do what they're told, but that's not what it is. And I don't like the word pathological as part of that because it sounds bad. It sounds, yeah, because we're used <laughs> it's to it's medicalizing. Yeah. It is medicalizing, which I think well, is why the U.S. has been reluctant to use that as a separate diagnosis. It's like that's how they categorize the features, but essentially, it's like if you're the different aspects of having. Um, autism, ADHD, and anxiety all together converge into something kind of all of those at once in a big ball. <laughs> um, and it means that um, how it comes out with my child in particular is being asked to do things or being told to do things produces such a high level of anxiety that they literally cannot do that. Um, but a person with those traits also um, is extremely self-starting, very intrinsically motivated, um, and often are among the most dedicated people in their in their fields and in the work that they do, because um, all of their motivation is intrinsic. They can't be motivated by things that are external. So I can't bribe my kid to do chores. I can't say, you'll get your allowance if you do your chores. But if I say, hey, when you get a chance, do you think you could do X, Y, Z for me? Then my kid will just do it and we'll say, or, or we'll say, hey, can I help you with this? It looks like you need some help. Or last night I was saying, oh my gosh, it's so cold in here. And they said, um, oh, could I put on some hot water for you to make some tea? Um, but if I had said, hey, go make me a cup of tea, that would have gone not. This is included with autism? It's a type? Or in the it U.S., it is. Um, it's 
like traits that they consider filed under autism. Okay. Whereas in, if you're in the UK, it's its own separate thing that you can be diagnosed with, but it's not, it's not a diagnosis in the DSM in the US. There's different you... defiant thing, the reactive defiant or whatever that's called. There's another- The oppositional one. defiant. Yes, thank you. So but, which, which like after looking at who gets diagnosed with ODD, I, I have a hard time seeing that as anything other than a, a, a sit down and shut up and be a good kid diagnosis. And it gets laid m more on kids of color than white kids. Oh, wow. The reason that we figured out what was going on with our youngest was that um, we took them to a new doctor for the ADHD. Um, and the previous psychologist had said, well, you should have this, 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 this evaluation done. And the, the new psychiatrist said, I don't think any of that fits you at all. And it was, you too, you know your child best and your child knows themselves best. And so we finally found somebody who was willing to listen and, um, but yeah. <laughs> Some some people have uh, started renaming the words that go with PDA. Some autistic people, they say that it should stand for Persistent Drive for Autonomy. Mm, I like that a lot. I just dislike the actual words so yeah. extremely because it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like it fits. Well, there's all these, con yeah, feel like there's all these connotations of words that are the connotations right. yeah. themselves become offensive or in the same thing with pathological that's what you see in the movies and on tv they use the word pathological so much to mean a, um evil and not yeah. yep. a persistent problem um or whatever yeah. that word means yeah i'm a little biased and it's all it's all part of our demonizing yeah. mental illness yes. i'm a little, a little biased because i absolutely love my kid and her their um their stubborn streak and their persistence and and all of that is those are things that i like about my kids yeah. those, are, those don't feel bad to me those feel like yeah. things that stubborn streak has has actually been a a good thing in all of the years that we've been fighting for getting the school to provide what's needed if my kid were a more compliant and less stubborn and less um less likely to to just dig their heels in <laughs> yeah um, it would have it actually would not have it would have been worse um it's it was bad enough as it was fighting for what what they needed but um it helped having a kid who was just also gonna dig their heels in <laughs> you know what um this leads to to a question i want to ask why is it so hard to find good support? I get why it's so hard to fight schools because the schools are kind of run like it's all formulaic. But why is it so hard for queer kids, and queer par uh, parents, queer parents of queer kids? Um, why is it hard for parents and kids to find support? It, and you know, I'm an hour from Kansas City, and I'm serious. Everything that was listed on this list that I got. Uh, from Children's Hospital, it was non-existent or it, it didn't meet the needs of, of queer children with autism. Um, here, all of our resources that you get referred to are um, ADA. Mm -hmm. ADA meaning 
uh, ABA, that's Applied Behavioral Analysis. It is, uh, it is a collection of different methods of teaching autistic people. And most often what it gets used for is to try to teach autistic people how to pretend not to be autistic. Oh, to assimilate. Right. And, and people who work in the field, if you listen to what they're saying to each other, they're complaining about, we have these kids, we've gotten them 40 hours a week of ABA for 10 years, and they can't count change and they can't take a bus. And, and it, because they've spent all their time on, on um, these methods that, that, hides their autism but doesn't help it help them learn right. to you know right it's not working them. with the person to to help oh them God. be happy on on their terms and what they want and need out of life it's to make the people around them comfortable so for example one of the things uh, a lot of people got a, a lot of people my age got trained to to have and people still get trained is to have quiet hands because like a lot of autistic that's, people, we like to move our hands around a lot and we like to do this and we like to do that. And, and it's called stimming. It's, 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 it's a stimulatory behavior. It has a lot of different purposes, but it has purposes. It has meaning. And they will try to train autistic children to not move like autistic children. And the best way I know to explain what that can do to children is imagine if all your life you were trained that you couldn't walk the way your body liked to walk. You had to do this special extra side shuffle everywhere you went until that just was like ingrained in you that you always had to walk this way. Don't you think you'd be tired at the end of the day? If the kid is keeping into their own, you know, uh, space bubble. Yeah, if they aren't hurting anybody, let them. Or themselves, yeah. Let's talk about the intersection because I, you know, Amy first mentioned this kids with autism have higher rates of being LGBT, queer. Um, so let's talk about that. And Amy gave a good ex explanation as to why, but I kind of want to hear what's the official line here from, uh, you know, you, you walk in those circles. What do you hear about why that is? There are uh, several different theories out there. And I think what's happening is a little piece of a lot of different ideas of what's going on. Um, for example, one hypothesis is that there isn't really a higher rate of queer people among autistic people. There's a higher rate of being willing to come out and live a queer life. And that, that we might find if we were able to dig down that the whole population has that same higher rate, but they're closed in by their social expectations. Whereas autistic people, we do tend, we tend to do one of two things. We either follow the rules a hundred percent and oh my gosh, I pity anyone around us who broke them because they're going to get an earful or we, we struggle with authority and it's not because we're struggling with authority so much as that we don't really see it. 
Like I, I have in retrospect, I have said things to people in authority, whether it's, you know, the, the dean of my college or a police officer or whomever that I never should have said if I were being respectful and deferring to their authority. But I have to remind myself, actively remind myself that someone is an authority with some amount of control over something in my life because I can't see it. It's it's not really visible to me. And so if we aren't really seeing those kinds of social expectations, all kinds of stuff comes out that is, my air quotes again, not socially acceptable, like being queer. Like, like why would we hide being queer and not pursue a, a life in, alignment with who we are and what we want in life when we aren't recognizing the things that say we shouldn't do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you're neuroqueer anyway, you're already used to all the abuse. So this is just one more part. Why, who cares? But um, right. maybe that. And, and then there's, a, there's another hypothesis. It's based on studies of deaf children. They, they found that there's a higher rate of queerness among deaf people. And when they studied deaf people to try and figure out why that was, the one of the conclusions they came to was that if you already have one divergence, like being deaf, it's so much easier to step into another divergence because you're already outside of the box. Yeah, and that's what I meant. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to let you know what Amy said because I've also heard it from um, the gal that diagnosed my younger. Uh, she told us that, um, and Amy said this too, when, um, when you're autistic, you have a hard time deciphering social cues and that, so you don't get the message that there are women, there are men, women act this way, men act this way. Mm. This, these are the boxes you must conform. And so they're more able to come into their own sexuality or gender identity, um, earlier or what was that about right amy do you remember yeah, now so, uh, okay. yeah so that is um basically what my my brother who is also uh, my brother is um trans a trans man and is also bisexual and has said that um that you that the the messages that society pushes in are sometimes not absorbed in the same way so you're not necessarily locked into men are men and women are women mm -hmm. and this is how they interact with each other and that's how it shall be forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's kind of based yeah. on the idea that your sexuality develops based on social cues. Um, so uh, at least that's what I understood it. The gal saying to us. Sexuality, ex that your expression of that yeah. develops based on the social cues. Yeah talking about um how there's a large number of people who are both autistic and queer so what are some of the challenges that that people face um and what what resources do they have as children one of the big challenges is um comes from the way that people view autism so many kids who are autistic come out as trans or as queer and are 
denied are told like no you're not you're just th this is just an autistic obsession with gender you're not really this you're and and, and the the kid is expressing their true feelings and getting told they're wrong and they don't know who they are because of the the stigmas surrounding autism and 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 the false beliefs around what autistic people are are able to do or understand or or think about and and the, the the higher support needs, the more someone gets questioned. Like there are a lot of people out there that believe that someone who is unable to communicate through speech could not possibly even know what gender is. And that is so untrue. There have been a lot of cases where adults with Down syndrome, autism, other disabilities who live in group homes are not allowed to date. They are not allowed yeah. to get married. Well, that goes to back before people used birth control. That's how old those laws are because they didn't want to produce babies that had those same same issues. Um, it goes back to Buck versus Bell, yeah, which is yeah. still on the books. That has never been overturned. Oh no, there's there's a lot of things still on the books that people don't realize when it comes to people with intellectual disabilities. Um, well, I know that you know having a, a child who's both autistic and asexual. Um, I know from other friends who are adults that people view asexual people already as, as babies and children, and it can be a problem there being out as asexual if you're also, if you also have disabilities, if you're autistic and um, various other things, because it's sort of assumed, well, why would you have to come out as that? Because of course you are. <laughs> And it's not acceptable socially for people with intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities and to have sexual desires. And I, I wonder if that does go back to these laws that were on the books about people not pro procreating. I think it does. I think it does. And, and to ideas that, that of, of like incompetence that like people might be so incompetent, they can't know who they are or what they want. And, and it has been deadly. Last winter, when I was in Arizona, I visited the grave of Caden Clark, who uh, was a young trans man uh, in his early 20s um, and autistic and trained support dogs and was even known on the internet for some viral videos that he made uh, with his dogs that he trained. And he was trying to get medical help to transition and was told that he could not transition until he quote unquote cured his autism, Holy which crap. is never going to happen. That's how your that's, that's what your brain is for all your, your autistic for your life. That's, that's, that is who you are. And, um, he became so distraught that, um, his landlord called the police and they came and shot him. And killed oh, him. Oh, one of those because, things. Because, oh. because the police aren't trained in how to deal no, with someone having a meltdown. No, and they, they think they're being threatened. And, you know, that's a fault of the police department. Not You know, I almost find, like, if I were a cop and I answered the door and somebody's coming at me with something, of course, because that's what I'm trained to do. So ugh, that goes to, definitely goes to, yeah, you we need to do something about the mental health uh of people and responding with mental health people instead of mm -hmm. departments. But yeah, that's yeah, when, I, when I lived in Denver, they were in the process of, of 
putting together a new program of social workers starting out riding along with cops to see what the city's like and then being the first responders to calls uh, of people with suicide, drug issues, depression, meltdowns, those kinds of things because a clinical social worker is going to be a much better fit for helping someone than the police officer. I don't know if they still have it anyway. But yeah, I, you know, the other thing is that we talked about suicide. Is that some of the problems with uh, suicide and not uh, it, with autism um, and queerness? And then you connect the both of them. Um, yeah, that's going to be a high rate. But because we expect, we, the external world expects things that, and just insists that things are this way for an autistic person or for a queer person, and they're not. They're simply not. And I'm sure you've seen the statistics about how much the suicide rate drops for trans people when the people around them start using their name and pronouns. No, I didn't know that. I will work on it harder now. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not, not to scare you or anything, but yes, trans people have a higher suicide rate, about as much higher as autistic people, about the seven to nine times higher. But they did a study of, of suicidal trans teenagers and found that when the the people in their life their their teachers their family their friends uh started using their name and pronouns that their suicide rate dropped down to just the general population rate that 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 is life-saving validation to recognize who someone is okay so let's talk about non-binary then too a non-binary person keeps their name, a legal name, shortens one of the names to a non-binary name, like Chris or Pat or Terry. Um, mm-hmm. you know, non-binary has a similar issue to bisexuality. Like if, if, let's say a bisexual woman is dating a man, her bisexuality becomes invisible while people see them together as a couple. And the same with a non-binary person, you can't see non-binary. Yeah. And so, so depending on how, like, cause I've known non-binary people who will dress very feminine or very masculine and people will see them as one or the other because of how they're dressed. And, and they're like, no, this is, this is just my clothes and because you can't see gender just like you can't see sexuality you can only see people's behaviors although you know i did perfect the androgynous look when i was a teenager and my dad was so pissed my dad got mad at me for that because you know you you're you're looking like you're an androgynous person and those people have real problems (laughs) well i've always been a little envious of people who could look androgynous because i can't and um, but I am a, the form of non-binary agender. I, yeah. the concept of gender is just meaningless to me. It doesn't, yeah. I don't feel a connection to any particular gender. And it took a while before I settled into that because I wasn't exactly sure. <laughs> I just knew non-binary and I would just say non-binary, but yes. it fits pretty well what they want to see and I finally just said well I'm going to have my hair and my clothes be comfortable and 
people will see what they want to see and that's just how it is but i do insist on people getting my pronouns because that's about all the they are very generous to me as well about the pronouns I, i'm actually yeah. pretty i'm pretty laid back about yeah. it i i like when people get them correct but i don't tend to I actually don't tend to be terribly upset because I know what people perceive. Um, And I've had people who, if they haven't seen me and seen a picture, just go by the nickname that I use and assume, assume things based on that name. So is there, is there a higher rate of suicide and, and uh, depression with non-binary people than with trans people? No one has really looked at that yet, to my knowledge. There is a is non-binary people are very deeply under-researched and undercounted, and uh, I should say trans-masculine or trans-feminine because I I think some people do identify as trans non-binary, and right, like I'm both trans-masculine and non-binary. Yeah. Um. The the sad thing is that there used to be a whole lot of research on non-binary people and all of that research was burned. If you've ever seen the famous footage of the Nazis burning books, that is the Magnus Hirschfeld Sexual Library in Germany that had extensive research on non-binary people. They were doing um, medical sex transition hormones and surgery way back. I mean, even, even like before, and they had just all of this magnificent documentation that was destroyed. And, and it set us back like a hundred years in our research. Yeah, we'll on never get that back. People. That's insane. We'll never get that I didn't. What it's insane is I had no idea that they would have even done that research way back in the twenties and thirties and before. I mean, not in America. <laughs> you know that would. Oh, yeah, we we have we have been um, we we have been doing medical transitions for trans people for well over eighty years. Yeah, yeah, I knew and, about and, that. I knew the first woman who did it. It was seen as a science miracle. But yeah, there was a large body of research about non-binary identities. Wow, that is that's that's cool, and it's a shame. Uh, you yeah. know, that just hurt. It's painful. Okay, okay. Well, I, I would like to say a little bit more about what AANE does. Yes, go ahead. Since, since that was the portal through which you brought me here. Yeah, we've gone um, all over the place. Yes. <laughs> um, normally, I don't get involved with groups that are just parent and professional groups mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. But the reason that I was happy to get involved with AANE is because they have evolved over time. And now they have autistic people in leadership on the board um, and they listen to input. As a result of that, they're really inclusive. For example, they do not require people to have an official diagnosis to take part in their events and their support groups and stuff, which is huge because as we were talking about, the diagnosis can be 
hard to obtain sometimes it's expensive it's harder for um, people who were assigned female at birth it's harder for people of color to get a diagnosis so any anybody who says i am autistic can get services through aane and uh, i wrote down a little list uh, and this isn't even a complete list this is just a list of the some of the stuff that i know that they're doing there are the support groups like the ones that i run there's also social groups for like game night book clubs knitting those kinds of things they have a huge body of information and resources on their website they do presentations and conferences. They have scholarships. They do couples coaching for married couples that are either both autistic or one is and one isn't. They have a speakers bureau to send autistic people and parents of autistic people out to, to educate in the community. They have an independent living support program, interview prep for people who are trying to get work. They have life management coaching. They call it Life Map, and it's really amazing. It helps like every aspect of your life to to become more independent. They have uh, an artist collective of autistic artists putting things together. They have trainings for couples therapists who who want to learn about how to work with autistic people. They have Asper coach training, they call it, where life coaches can get trained in being life coaches for autistic people. And they have so much more than that. That's just like a little list. They are all over the place doing everything they can think of to help autistic people have richer, fuller, more fulfilled, happier lives on their own terms, not on the terms of what other people think they should be and that I'm, explains I'm, why the why the queer group because or, or you know support um yeah i couldn't find it anywhere else and i looked and uh, i mean i spent a few days on the internet um and this has been a really hard thing for for our family um to try to figure out how to support this child um and, and it's so important yeah, and so, you know, could you talk about a little bit more, um, how can parents best be supportive of uh, autistic queer children? The number one thing is to listen and believe. Your kids know who they are and they're trying to tell you who they are. They may not even have the language to accurately express what they're trying to tell you. Just listen to them, trust them, believe them and and protect them from like sometimes you'll be okay with who your kid is but maybe your parents aren't yeah and and it sounds terrible to say protect them from their grandparents but if they have people in their lives who are invalidating who yeah. they are and what they need in life then then it's really important to protect them when you can and when you can't to debrief them like after after you see your kid have some kind of challenging encounter with a playmate a family member at school whatever talk it talk through it with them and make sure they know that they are good and valid and wanted and loved exactly as they are make sure they know that they have the right to say no to things that they can tell are harmful to them because kids know yeah. and and tell them that if you say no and somebody doesn't want to accept your no you come get me and i will help you oh that's great 
Yes. So, so what about that? Because, you know, um, a lot of this is advocating for our child, but at some point I feel like I'm getting in trouble because I'm doing the advocating and I think they are trying to do it themselves. And that's the hard thing for me is knowing when to step back and let the kid, um, you know, and then you, they get to the age of mine is. I just say, do you want me to make that contact? Yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's, that, just, it's just hard to know when you're stepping in it as a parent and it happens. Stuff, with, I with just ask material. because yeah. I have kids who will tell me if I, I have to ask directly and I have to use clear language to say, do you want me to do this? And sometimes the answer is, I don't know, or I don't, I need some time to think yeah. about it. And that's for always do. for us. It's, I don't know. And, uh, I don't care. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and, this is, and how are you feeling today? Eh, it finally took <laughs> decipher. That's actually where their autism manifests. And so it's very hard for me to even ask a direct question and get a straight answer. So I feel like sometimes I'm stepping in it. It's like that here. I live next door to my brother and there's four kids from age eight to 17 um, three of whom are autistic and all the time, do you want this? Do you want that? Are you hungry? It's always, I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. The food thing is big. I don't know. It's even, I've learned when I get, I don't know that, that, that means I need to ask some more clarifying questions and try and I try and I already told you I was okay. No, you just said, uh, and I don't even know what you mean by okay. <laughs> and we had to sit in a there. We had to sit in a therapy session and go over what these signals mean. Um, okay, when you say "uh," does that mean uh, you know number it? Does that mean like a seven yeah. or a four or a zero? <laughs> yes. So uh, it's very hard to with a child that manifests in their facial features and their, their um, tone and their vocalization. Um, my kid has one tone, uh, it's very monotone. And so it's very hard for me to tell. Um, and that's just gotten worse with time. And it's not the normal teenager stuff uh, because I've had two older ones and we've been through that with them and clarification worked with them, perfect. But it's hard sometimes when you're just a parent and you've got no support and there are social needs that need to be met. Um, to meet those, but yeah, um, I mean, we have stuff where where one kid will trigger the other kid. Where like one kid really loves efficiency, so they rearrange the way the dishes are in the cabinet into a more efficient yeah. configuration, and another kid that gets really upset when things change and no one told them. Yep, and that turns into this big blow up because they're both just trying to get needs met that that are clashing. Yeah, I thought I was helping by going in and picking up the room a little bit because they're at school all day. They work so hard. I feel, I'll just do this for them. It's something I can do as a mom. And um, they finally told me, I go, yeah, this change thing really bothers you. They go, yeah, well, sometimes when you're in my room and you put things away, it really causes anxiety. Oh, okay. So I have to go in and just gather the laundry and move on with my day and, and not yes and i know those you, you might put a thing in the wrong place yeah you might you might put a thing in the wrong place you might go to put a thing away and see something that was private that no one was supposed to see or yeah. 
And, and just everything's different. You, yeah. you can walk into the room and it doesn't look the way you expected it to look. It's, I feel like I'm getting bit every time I do something, but it's, it's all in, in the, the diagnosis has helped in that way that, oh, okay. So this explains this, like, right, the explanation. Um, so it's just trying to find ways to help that, that, that I'm coming up short on. It's frustrating too, because when you go to look for things online, a ton of the advice for parents is still based on the curative. It's bad. It's bad advice for anyone. It's, you know what I mean? I I actually, so um, a friend had shared a list of resources, which I might be able to dig up again. Um, I didn't end up needing it after whatever I used it for, but it was a list of better websites um, with, so for example, actually autistic parents Mm -hmm. who are raising autistic children. Oh, that's cool. Um, Yeah, because they have the perspective of, I can tell you from personal experience and as a parent, what works. Um, Yeah. And and they won't give advice for that you need to fix your kid or whatever. And, and those resources can be so hard to find because the the search engines don't and, and the people who write the things that get in the search engines don't seem to be too particular about the difference between an autism parent and an autistic parent. And so you go to look for things about autistic parents and you'll get autism parents, which is, which I don't even like the phrase, but it's a phrase for people who are parenting someone with autism. Um, and, yeah. and that stuff fills up the search engine. So it's really hard for, for people to find stuff that's by and about parents who th- themselves are autistic. Yeah. And we're getting better and better research. Every year there's this this uh, scientific conference and one of the events that they have is they, they sit down and listen to autistic people. So I, I've represented different organizations in different years for that. We all get on Twitter and, and we get the questions ahead of time and the scientists sit there and read and talk about what we're saying about what we want to have research. Like like one year, everybody that was on there was talking about trauma and we need this plus trauma. We need trauma-informed job seeking. We need trauma-informed housing. We need, and 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 these things work because the, the year that everybody was talking about trauma, about two years later, I started seeing all kinds of research coming out about autism and trauma, and it made me really happy that they're listening to us. There was a, so our school district, um, I just finished a training in uh, trauma intervention, uh, crisis intervention um, mm-hmm. for trauma. And um, the reason that the school district started using that was that a parent of an autistic student came to them and said, can we do trauma-informed care because I have a child who really needs to have this type of care available at school. And so now it's required for a, for, um, a, a large number of school employees, which I guess is why it still bothers me that they still use the behavioral, um, the behavioral intervention, um, Mm -hmm. because 
the students who actually need behavioral intervention for other reasons are, are, are the ones getting the trauma care. <laughs> um, the autism classrooms are not the ones, they are attached to the people doing the trauma care, but they're also getting this extra um, applied behavior analysis piece to it that the kids who are there for trauma intervention are not getting. <laughs> So, um, so it actually, well, and the people who do the training expect that we're going to use the trauma informed care with all the students, but the classroom teachers have a different approach. So it's, it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, but yeah. ABA is one of those hammers that's, that sees everything as a nail. Like I have seen people getting ABA for anxiety and depression, which is just scary to me. Somebody is depressed and anxious and you're going to use a, a behavioral training technique to address it. You know, if you just behaved better, you'd, you'd feel better. Uh, yeah, that doesn't even make sense at all. Doesn't it? It, it, it scares me when I see that, but that's probably that. why they didn't get the trauma informed stuff is because well we've got aba we're just going to hammer down all those nails yeah so yeah we're going to hide the problem so why why should we have to deal with the trauma stuff we're going right. to hide it. We're gonna teach the kids how to tie to everything right whereas the <laughs> other program that they have going on at the same time does actually use the trauma-informed approach and um they were using a more aba type approach and then changed because this was more effective getting to the heart of what was going on with some of these kids with a lot of challenges. And, you know, they were looking at it as behavior is communication. So that was one of the things that we talked about in this training was behavior is communication. What are these kids telling us? They're telling us that they need help. They need co-regulation. They need, um, they need to process their trauma. They need us to understand what trauma triggers they have. But this um, group over here has the label. They all yep. have this. And so they have a medical label, which yes. that speaks to the idea that autism isn't a, a brain that's functionally different. It's something that needs to be cured. Right. So that's probably why they're like, no, we've been curing kids this way for centuries and curing quote unquote. Um, but yeah, and then and they do know the problems. They do know follow up on that that curing with the air yeah, quote. No, like, and then, and like, like they say, oh, they've become indistinguishable from their peers. We've succeeded, yay! And then yeah. they do no follow up, and they don't see how many of those people go on to have complete breakdowns when they hit thirty, and they just can't. They, they've been living on emergency reserves all their life, trying to like keep all these plates in the air and and they just they just crash and burn yeah. and and i i have known several autistic people who who everything seemed to be fine in like in quotes but like they had gone through the training they had learned how to present themselves as a neurotypical person they got a really good job at like a fortune 500 company and everything was great they hit their late 20s, around 30, crash and burn, and can't even speak anymore wow. because they have run through so much of their just like adrenaline and yeah. energy reserves for decades that they just absolutely rock bottom crash.
you you know you've written a couple of, of books uh anything related to this you'd like to promote discuss discuss and promote yes um there's a couple one this one i edited and i wrote the introduction it's called spectrums uh autistic transgender people in their own words Okay. It came out from Jessica Kingsley Publishers in 2020, and I have like, I think, 30 contributors. Everything from like, there's there's poetry, there's there's memoir, there's even a, a, a what a, a piece that started its life as an academic paper about um, autism and gender in Star Trek that is just so oh, cool. Yes. And, and so the, and then um, I have a piece in someone else's anthology. This came out from Beacon Press in 2021. It's called Sincerely Your Autistic Child. And it was put together by three editors who are members of AWN, which is the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network, which, you're, which you're remember started, that too, right? I am a member of yes. that too. It started life as as the Autistic Women's Network, and then they said, "Wait, no, we want non-binary people in here too." So the and turned into non-binary, and the network is now just imagined, and yeah. so it's still AWN. But Emily Page Ballou, Sharon Devanport, and Moronike Moronike Giwa Onailu are the editors. I I know all three of them. They're marvelous, marvelous people, and I have an essay in here that is about teaching your kid how to say no and make it stick and 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 how it will protect your child from abuse and and sexual abuse if if they are if they know that they have permission to say no to things that don't feel right and and there's so many other wonderful contributions in this book and we have a blurb from hannah gadsby on the back which is like rock star so, it's amazing talking to you because it's nice to see that, yes, my children can grow up to be confident human beings and and uh, and love themselves, you know, the way that you do. It's obvious. And hopefully, you, hopefully in less time than it took me to get to this yeah. point. But the fact that you're here and that, yes, people do succeed in, in, in whatever ways, but people do live with this and they do get on in life and... And, uh, and have very happy, meaningful, fulfilled, successful lives. The key there is to make sure it's on their terms, not on anyone else's. So, so like a parent who says, oh, I, I'm never going to get grandchildren or my child's never going to do this or do that. That's your own thing to sit with. Yeah. And, you know, it's okay that you sit with it. But it's not yeah, kids. you should you should sit yeah. with it. Yeah. The thing is, you may get a grandchild, you may not get a grandchild, but either way, it has nothing to do with how your child feels about their own life. That's yeah. that's the important thing. Is your child happy and fulfilled and successful on their terms? And yes, we absolutely can find that in our lives. I just want to thank you again, um, Maxfield Sparrow. And you know, Amy, I'm so, so glad you could be here with us today on this one. This, is, this has been really great. Um, you know, as with bisexuality, um, there's a whole universe, bi plus autism, whatever you're going through, you're not the only one going through it. And uh, as unique as you may feel and as alone as you may feel. 
there, there's a whole universe out there ready to embrace you. Reach out and find your community.